It was January 1st, 1773. A pastor at a small church led in a hymn that he wrote to accompany that New Year's sermon. He called it Faith's Review and Expectation. Not exactly an exciting title. And yet little did he or his congregation know that this humble chorus would go on to be the most sung song or hymn in the English language. Today, you'll instantly recognize the opening words, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. I'm Charles Morris with the Great Stories Podcast, and today I'm speaking with a friend of mine who I've worked closely with over the past couple of years, Dr. Bruce Heinmarsh. He's a professor of spiritual theology and Christian history at Regent College in Vancouver. He's a John Newton scholar, probably the world's greatest Newton scholar. And he's just co-authored a new book, Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton and the Surprising Story Behind His Song, a book that we helped play a small role in getting to print. I can't wait for you to listen in. Now, maybe you've seen the 2006 movie Amazing Grace, but that was William Wilberforce's story, not John Newton's, although he played a small role in it. Well, today you'll hear the real story with its core resembling Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Newton's life was hard, utterly sinful, littered with contradictions, and yet Christ offered him grace and he repented. And if you've ever been moved by the hymn Amazing Grace, then you won't wanna miss the surprising story behind it in this conversation, and even more so in Bruce's book, which you can get at haventoday.org. But first, let's get started. I want you to meet my friend, Bruce Heinmarsh. Bruce Heinmarsh, you've written a new book, Amazing Grace, and I should give the subtitle, The Life of John Newton and the Surprising Story Behind His Song. You wrote it along with our friend Craig Borlase, who's in England. You're the scholar behind this project. You've been studying John Newton ever since you went to Oxford. Most of our audience listening to us today has heard the name John Newton. But kind of give us the short story of John Newton's life, and then we'll dig into some of the aspects of his life then. Well, John Newton would be known for, maybe people might know that he wrote Amazing Grace and other hymns, Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, and some of these hymns. Some people might know that he was a friend of William Wilberforce, and he encouraged him in the abolition campaign against slavery. In England. England. Mm -hmm. And some people might also know that he was a friend of the poet William Cooper. These are some of the ways that people maybe sort of have heard his name. But his story is so interesting. 30 years ago, when I started working on Newton, I was working on his theology and his ministry, and he was an absolutely key figure in the early evangelical awakening in Britain. But for this book, a biography, we looked at the whole of his life, and I was reminded, Charles, what a remarkable story. I mean, several times he should have died. There's so many mm. near-death experiences. Mm. There were terrible things that happened to him. And, and this is a young man you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, even as a young the... man. So at uh, six years of age, you know, his mother died when his father was away at sea, and he is left all alone in the world at six years of age. 
and your heart kind of goes out to this uh, young boy. He had learned the hymns of Isaac Watts from his mother. His mother was hoping someday he would go into the ministry. Mm-hmm. And you have the sense of a kind of childhood Eden, a kind of paradise from which he is suddenly expelled, and the world seems harsh. It seems so harsh. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're sympathetic with this young man. Well, it was a harsh world. It was. Living in London, but then having a cantankerous father who, you know, yeah. ruled with an iron fist and wasn't ever there. Yeah, he described his father as over, he said, my father overawed my spirit. Mm. And then the new kind of, his father remarried right away. And in that new step family, he just never felt at home. Right. He never felt at wow. home. And he um, fell in love uh, sort of, you know, there's a reckless love and reckless decisions that he makes because he's in love. He falls in love with a woman named Mary Catlett. And, and that's what, around when he first met her, he was, what, he's a, 16, yeah, 17? Right. He's a teenager, like and she's an early teenager. Okay. And, yeah, um, she was younger than he was. Yeah, that's right. So when we think of John Newton as a young man, you know, he, he said his motto at that time as a teenager was never deliberate. He would just run off in all directions and um, without thinking, like many teenagers. And he fell punch drunk in love with this young woman, Mary Catlett. He's maybe 16 years of age, and she's maybe around 14, something like that. But one of the things that Craig noticed, and he's so good at this, my co-author, as he feels his way into the story, is this is the home where John Newton's mother died. It was Mm -hmm. a family friend, Mm -hmm. friends of uh, Newton's uh, mother. And, And Craig had a sense that this was like, the family that Newton was looking for, where he felt mm. estranged from mm. his step family. Mm. And I think there's probably something to that. Three times in a row, Charles, in December, John Newton overstayed and couldn't tear himself away from the Catlett home. Three times in a row, he got in trouble with his elders. He got in trouble with the Navy because he just couldn't tear himself away. So he's a young man who is impulsive, who is upsetting people's plans. He's getting himself into trouble. And where he really got himself into trouble was when he was 18. He is out kind of strutting about in his uh, sailor's clothing and uh, not being very cautious at a time when war is threatening with France. Mm-hmm. And they can there, there's laws that allow the Navy to legally kidnap people just to grab them. Because they needed sailors. They needed sailors. And so it's like eminent domain. They can just come in and grab you. And if you don't have the right papers, you're in the Navy. So mm. at 18 years of age, mm. six years of age, he loses his mother. At 18 years of age, he's kidnapped and finds himself in the, in the Navy. And it's a brutal world the, 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 of the Navy. This is not pleasure sailing. <laughs> this is not a cruise. <laughs> and uh, his father managed to get him promoted to midshipman, which is like a junior officer. But Newton is kind of lording it over the other sailors. He's kind of like showing off. He's being kind of rough with the the common seamen sailing, as they say, before the mast. But then impulsive again, they're uh, on the south coast of England and about to head out for a long tour of duty in the East Indies. And Newton goes AWOL. He leaves thinking, I can just go walk you know, to see my father, I'll I'll find my way to my father and he'll get me out of this. I don't want to be in the Navy because he's so in love with Mary Catlin. Well, he is captured. They send a crew out looking for him. And when he comes back on board the ship, this is around 1745, he is uh, whipped with a cat of nine tails. He is stripped of his rank. He is placed in the midst of those very sailors that he had formerly been abusing. 
this is a low point. This is where things are looking really bad. And as the ship is leaving the coast of England, he looks over the gunnels and he was seriously contemplating murder-suicide. Suicide, yes. Kill the captain, and, and most, kill himself. Mo- most people don't realize that when you were lashed with a cat of nine tails, those stripes left scars. That's right. For the rest of your life. That's right. Which, of course, is symbolic of what would happen. Let's go forward. He's got this... This personality where he wants to escape, his father actually saves him multiple times, even Mm -hmm. though his father Mm -hmm. is this iron rod who didn't really appreciate his son doing this. He ends up in Africa himself. Let's go to the slave, being a slave ship captain or just before that. So just before that, you know, he's desperate to get out of the Navy and through a kind of chance event where they're, they're trading some sailors out of the uh, merchant marine for some sailors in the Navy. They're exchanging off the coast of uh, West Africa. And Newton says, I'll go, I'll go, take me. And the captain probably realized, I'm just as happy to get rid of this guy. And as Newton descends the ladder of the naval warship into the merchant ship, I think, Charles, he is literally or and symbolically descending into the dark world of the slave trade. Mm. So that's the point in his early 20s where early he, 20s, yeah, yeah. Where, okay, where he joins a slave ship. This ship called the Levant is a Guinea ship, and it's starting into the west down the West African coast, gathering slaves. Mm. He's a steward mm. on the ship, mm. so he's in charge of the stores and so on. And uh, and this is where he's sort of encountering the slave trade for the first time. Wow. He goes on then to become a slave ship captain himself. Well, even just before that, he's on this ship for about six months. And then again, impulsively, somebody on the ship is going to go set up a little fort on the coast. That'll be the kind of a base for collecting slaves and then selling them. And he says, oh, I'll go. I'll be an apprentice to you and I'll, I'll, I'll join this enterprise and maybe I can make money in the west coast of Africa. And this is another really low point for him because he thinks, you know, maybe he can make his fortune here, but instead he ends up mistrusted by this man and by this man's mistress, his black mistress, who's a powerful figure. And he ends up, he's malarial, he's nearly dying of fever, he ends up himself enslaved. He ends up in chains. It's other slaves that have sympathy on him and bring him food. He nearly dies unloved, of starvation, of disease, abused, and far away from home. And yet the surprising thing is he still doesn't really see yet that slavery itself is wrong, even though he was enslaved. There are these moments as a young man where he resolves to resolve to resolve that I'm going to do the right thing. He's reading the Bible. He's doing things. And and, and that's a little later on. And he fails again. Mm -hmm. At some point, he realized he was a sinner. Yeah. When do you think that was? Yeah. Oh, that's really, really well put, Charles, because I think throughout his youth, with the, he has this memory of his mother and so on, and it's like he resolves and he tries and he fails, and he resolves and he fails. And at one level, like, you know, there may be some of your listeners who feel this way, that at a certain point, they just feel like it's too hard and I give up, uh-huh. and I just keep disappointing myself, 
you know. Then he also encounters some literature that makes him feel more comfortable just being sort of agnostic and 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 sophisticated and gives him a sort of a place to be they call it deism in the 18th century so it gives him a place to be a sort of a bit more hard-hearted about god and about anything religious and he had a keen mind too oh he had a keen mind he's reading latin he's reading euclid even while he's enslaved on this little desert island but his father had sent a ship to look for him and you're right, his father, there's a sort of sympathetic side to his father. It keeps kind of trying to reach out in various ways. And there's a ship called the Greyhound that stops on the coast of Africa and asks after John Newton. And at that point, he didn't actually even want to leave the, the coast of Africa. And so the ship captain lied to him and said, uh, an absolute fortune has been left to you. You need to come back to England because you're going to have like 400 pounds a year and you're going to be set for life. And he, he lies and gets him on board the ship. <laughs> and, and so this, this ship, the Greyhound, is trading down the coast of Africa, not a slave ship. This is a, a cargo ship, if you like, trading merchandise, dyers, wood, and various things. Beeswax, I think. Beeswax. Yes, and, yes. And, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, Newton, at this point, is sort of free of responsibilities. He can just be on this ship and make its way home. But the ship, a bit recklessly, makes a quite a long journey. Like, they're, they're trading for almost a year, all the way down to equatorial Africa, and then they're going to try to make it home in one huge arcing voyage that is going to pass Brazil and the West Indies and go all the way up past Newfoundland in one big arc to try to make it back to Ireland, mm-hmm. even though, you know, the ship is going to be out of repair, the ropes and the sails and, and so on. And, and I think Newton is even aware that this is a bit reckless. And what happens is... Um, You know, he started reading whatever literature was kind of around on the ship and he was reading, you know, some some devotional books and, you know, you could tell that there's something going on, a kind of pre-evangelism, if you like, something Mm -hmm. that he's reading Mm -hmm. that is sowing some seeds. But then he's awakened March 21st in the middle of the night in a North Atlantic storm. There's somebody uh, who in front of him is climbing up out of the hold of the ship onto the deck and they're swept overboard. And it is desperate and the waves are mountain high and the ship is out of control. And he finds himself as they're at the pumps and as he's piloting the ship in the night, he mutters a prayer. If this will not do, then the Lord have mercy. And I think that's the moment, Charles, where it's like his hardened exterior cracks and all the agonies of a repressed conscience and all that he knew to be true about God. He just thinks... Oh, how can there be mercy for me? Who am I to cry out to God for mercy? Look at what I've done. Because of all the things that I've done. So it's not just the awful things that happened to him. It's the things that he himself had done for which he needed mercy. And he begins to realize this. And you think that was the beginning of his finding grace, not just realizing the depth of his sin. I think it was, but... Craig likes to say that event is sort of made for television. It's sort of a made for television conversion. It's a Damascus Road conversion, a foxhole conversion. It's so dramatic. And the story we want to hear is is sort of one and done. He has this great conversion and then he writes Amazing Grace or something and he's uh, but you we know We want what? to make it easy. Yeah. That is not the Christian life, <laughs> no. Bruce. And it wasn't it wasn't for him. In fact, he looks back and he's very clear. He says to people, "My conversion wasn't like a noonday brightness like Apostle Paul. 
it was more like the dawning of the day with a kind of twilight. And it was very, it was only very gradually that it got brighter. So he wants us to see his conversion, if you like, not V-shaped, but U-shaped. <laughs> that it, it takes okay. a while. Okay. It takes a while. And in fact, you know, he says, I was no longer an infidel. What he means is, I believe the gospel to be true. Mm. And I better live up to it. I need to try harder now. Okay, this is serious. And wrong I, phrase. Right? A wrong phrase, Bruce. Yeah. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? And so within a year, he ends up first mate on now on a slave ship. And they're back on the coast of Africa. And he had thought he was going to you know, do well now. And he said, I returned like a dog to its vomit. Mm. And mm. Uh, keenly disappointed himself. And again, a course of sinful behavior. And he's back at that same island, Plantain Island, where it was he was called, a slave. Where himself. he was a slave. Okay. And he, again, God gets his attention through a kind of near-death experience. He is hit with, I presume it's malaria, but a tropical fever. He is desperate, and he's crawling on hands and knees to an isolated place on the island. And that's where he says, you know, it's almost like the alcoholic who has to come to the point where they let go completely and just say, I cannot save myself. And that's the point where he realized he needed God to do something for Mm -hmm. him that he couldn't do for himself. He said, I durst make no more resolves. And where he turned to Christ, the cross of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, he cried out for forgiveness and Mm -hmm. mercy. I'm Mm -hmm. not making any promises. Mm -hmm. I just, I I desperately need God. And he said, you know, he said from that moment, he said he felt a burden lifted off his conscience and he actually said he began to recover physically. Wow. If you like, in the storm, his conscience awakened. And then on this island is where he really turned to Christ. He is uh, maybe 23, 24, okay. something All like right. that. And he completes this voyage uh, where he is first mate on a slave ship. And he's making his first kind of very faltering steps in his faith. He's writing letters to his childhood pastor. Mm. And then... 1750, back in in England, he becomes captain of a slave ship. And, you know, Craig and I wrote this, and the way we wrote the book, it's vividly retold in real time, like you have a front row seat in a film or theater, so you're experiencing it happen in real time without a lot of commentary. This is the part where we feel, the reader, where all of us feel uncomfortable. It's like two tectonic plates are overlapping Mm. and we can feel the tremors because we're aware that Newton has turned to Christ. And yet he's still, he's captaining a slave ship. He's still a captain of a slave ship. Which is very hard for someone like us today in our culture to understand. It's horrific, isn't it? It really is. If you just joined us, you're listening to Haven Today. I'm Charles Morris, and we're on with Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh. He's written a book with Craig Berlays on Amazing Grace. He's a scholar. That's what his doctorate is in, his dissertation that he wrote from Oxford. Bruce, let's jump ahead. He gets married to that childhood sweetheart. He's at home in England. He can't stomach the slave trade anymore. He has some kind of a seizure maybe yeah. and that's yeah. that's the beginning of his ending his seamanship and seafaring that's right. career that's right. let's go to a little market town called only a place where you've actually lived when you were writing your dissertation a place where you and i visited together and stayed and just enjoyed the company of 
people. Tell me how he became a Church of England pastor in a little town called Olney, and what happened when he was there? Well, he leaves the slave trade in 1754, and there are signs he talked about. It It was, he felt like he was a jailer, and this business of having to do with chains and shackles and so on, and it's hard to know how the process by which he develops his anti-slavery sentiment, but there's signs that after he leaves the slave trade, there are some signs that very early, as early as maybe 1762, he actually is already moving among anti-slavery advocates, and he's contributing to that, to the building up of that kind of sentiment. But really, he, he leaves the slave trade because of a, a fit, a seizure, never happened again. Was it psychosomatic? I don't know. But he has a real seizure. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, like, you don't want somebody flying a plane if they're going to have a seizure. They don't want him. Anyway, he's out of the slave trade. But for about uh, 10 years, he's a layperson. He has a civil service job in the customs port at Liverpool, and he becomes self-taught. He teaches himself Latin and Greek and Hebrew and even Syriac, (laughs) and he becomes aware of the revival that's going on. He meets Whitfield and Wesley, and his heart, he feels like, if I've received mercy, how can I help other people find God's mercy? And he wants to be a part of this. Mm. He begins... Mm. um, you know, speaking, even as a layperson, speaking and sometimes preaching. And um, and he feels a real call to the ministry. I've mm-hmm. read his manuscript journal where he's recording his, you know, desire to be in the ministry and working through the discernment of all that. But it's a long process. And eventually, after you know, different doors were closing, it actually took seven years before his desires were fulfilled. After seven years, he's ordained in the Church of England, and he um, has a, a parish in the English Midlands, a, a little town of about 2,000 people at Olney. And here is where finally he can um, offer to people as a minister the grace that he himself had received. And, you know, it's uh, there's a little awakening that happens. Mm-hmm. They have to add another balcony to the church. Mm. He Pretty soon he's having services sometimes almost every day of the week. Let me pause you. Yeah. The children in a little town of 2,000 he starts a children's ministry once a week. That's right. And he'll have like over 200 children coming out to this. And they're doing sort of question and answer catechism. And he's teaching them songs and giving out books and doing sort of quizzes and contests and so on. But it's uh, it's the children. It's the adults. It's little cottage prayer meetings that are happening. The lacemakers who yeah. felt uncomfortable. They didn't feel like they could go into a, a formal church and a real service. So he went to them, didn't That's he? That's right. That's right. There were a lot of poor day laborers and these these people who would work by candlelight over the lace, very meticulous kind of work, people living, as we would say today, near the poverty line. And so when he would preach a sermon, you know, he began this pattern of writing sermons But then to go along with the sermon, he'd write a hymn. Hmm. And uh, William Cooper, his friend, the the poet who and his neighbor would help with this enterprise. And part of it was mnemonic. So you could remember the sermon Hmm. is you'd have the the sermon, but then you'd have the hymn. And you could recite the hymn while you're doing your lace making or while you're working in the field. And if you couldn't read. And if you couldn't read. Yeah. And it was a way that to have the gospel go into people's hearts. Well, you know, and he had prayer meetings. Um, he was ahead of his time, I think, Bruce. Yeah. Well, my goodness. 
I don't know if you call it revival. I don't know if you call it an outpouring. But the Lord really moved in those years there. Yeah. So 250 years ago, he kicks the year off with a special sermon and a special hymn, not knowing what the Lord would do with this. That's right. That's right. It's the end of the year, 1772, and uh, the last day of the year, and we need to picture him upstairs in his vicarage study, maybe a fire, a coal fire burning, and he's thinking about the service the next day, because they're going to have a service for New Year's Day, even though it's Friday. It's an important day. Mm. It's an important day in the parish. It's an important day with the passing of time to look back and to look forward and to renew your dedication to Christ and his purposes. And, it, and, and he's coming to the end of a journal where he's been recording his spiritual diaries, and he's going to be starting a new one the next day. It's sort of for the new one, for the new year. And he's thinking, what do I preach on? And uh, he's thinking, um, you know, there was a point where King David wanted to build the temple. And then the prophet Nathan comes and says, no, that's not going to be you. That's going to be your son, Solomon. You're not going to build God's house. God's going to build your house. And this is the the covenant that God made with David, that through David's lineage and through his house, and ultimately, of course, through the greater son of David, through Jesus Christ, God's grace and mercy would come. And that's the passage where David responds and says, who am I? Mm. You know, you've spoken of the past and you've spoken of the future. Like, who am I? First Chronicles 17, 16 and 17. And Newton thought that, well, this is perfect because this is the moment where David says, grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. This is where David is saying, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a murderous and adulterous king. And so so he's able to write the sermon, and then he writes this hymn, Amazing Grace, to go with it. And the next day, New Year's Day, he stands up and he preaches the sermon, and he introduces the hymn. Mm. And the rest, as they say, is history. And of course, the hymn was part of the only hymns that he and William Cooper put together, made its way to North America, the Great Awakening here. And it's funny because it may be the most sung hymn in the English language. It's becoming that in Spanish, I understand. Mm. But at the time, it was just another hymn. You That's know? right. It, it was, um, you know, I've kind of looked through, Charles, I've actually looked through hundreds and hundreds of hymn books, kind of tracing this story. And it, it made it into a few little hymn books, you know, mm. in England. Mm. But there's a scholar of hymns, Eric Rootley, said it, that it disappears from the public record basically in common use in England until the 1950s. Like it really, it, it wow. just kind of disappears in England where it was written. But, uh, but on the other side of the pond... It just begins, it becomes an American story, and it finds its way among the Dutch Reformed in New York and among the Congregationalists in New England and the Great Awakening. And then, of course, on the frontier and the camp meetings, it becomes a song of testimony. But it was about 200 years ago uh, that it found its tune, because when these hymns were first written, they weren't necessarily matched to a tune. But the tune to which we know it today, from which it seems absolutely inseparable, it's about 200 years ago, an old um, southern shape note tune called New Britain 
based on the pentatonic scale. It has a roots kind of folk feel to it. It found that tune, and I think that's part of what happened is that it that 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 tune kind of carried the words. Mm. The universal mm. message meets a kind of universal melody. And then, and then um, if one were to add bagpipes to that too, it makes yeah. it even more relevant, you know? <laughs> you know, the funny thing though, Charles, is it wasn't played on bagpipes <laughs> till 1972. <laughs> It was the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards who performed it on bagpipes. And what I still can't get my mind around is it charted on the Billboard Top 40 on bagpipes in the early 1970s. Well, I've I've been to at least one, maybe two funerals in my life that there was a piper playing Amazing Grace. Oh, and state funerals, repeatedly you hear it on bagpipes and it's mournful. And it touches people. After 9-11, you know, I've listened to the testimony of some of the pipers who just talked about at some of the memorials, they'll start playing Amazing Grace on bagpipes. And he said, you can just see that Mm. the people, just how deeply moved they are. So it found its way into the churches, sort of widely, widely sung in the churches. And then what happened is in the 19... Post-war years, uh, 1947, it's recorded by Mahalia Jackson. It's a spiritual. Yeah, and it's already been being sung in uh, African-American churches, uh-huh. and it's becoming like their own black gospel spiritual. But when she sings it, and it begins to play on the radio, it moves into, if you like, sort of a commercial, secular space. And then Judy Collins, it becomes almost a, a, a civil rights kind of anthem, and it's sung by uh, Judy Collins. She sang it with the Vietnam War in mind. Exactly. And, 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 and Mahalia Jackson, for the pre-early days, the civil rights movement in the 60s, yeah. that would yeah. happen. And uh, the hymn I've heard sung at many funerals, not always with a bagpipe. And all the people who show up, they're not even believers necessarily, and they sing a wretch like me. It gets hold of you with that New Britain tune and those lyrics that Newton wrote. I've been thinking about this a lot, Charles. You know, it's interesting that there were some hymn book editors and some uh, mainline churches in the 20th century that were embarrassed by the word wretch. And they, they tried removed it. They tried to revise it, you know, that saved and strengthened me, <laughs> that saved someone like me. <laughs> But it's not those versions that get sung when life throws its very worst. No, you know, we know that sooner or later we experience the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and there is a there's a wretchedness that we need to reckon with. And what's so astonishing to me, Charles, is that a hymn which talks about being saved that saved a wretch like me, that people sing it when life is awful. And when life is tragic, when they face inconsolable loss, they sing these words that are words of gratitude. But I think what they're doing is they're, it's a prayer for grace. Yes. It becomes a prayer for, and it becomes like, I want to know that when life is at its very worst, that that's not the last word. The last word is grace. And I think it, it puts us in touch with our human condition. There's a kind of historical accident where the... The hymn doesn't mention the word Jesus or God until, except for no less days to sing God's praise. So in a secular world, you can sing it. <laughs> oh, I see. Yes. And so where John Newton, in a more theological age, understood grace to mean the grace of God in Jesus and his atoning death for sinners, and they understood all that, I think people sing it now, 
and it's like it touches them in terms of um i need i need grace yes i need kindness in the midst of you know the the awful experiences we go through where can i find grace and so it is it is an astonishing story that this song has become the one that is universally sung at times of national tragedy at times of personal after school shootings after the uh, challenger disaster the oklahoma city bombing when life is inconsolable this is the song people want to sing mm. in your 30 years what in the life of john newton what aspects what periods what what is touched you personally. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Charles. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's so many parts of Newton's story, just the humanity and a struggling person makes mistakes and so on that I found quite moving. But, you know, I I turned uh, 60 years of age last year, and I feel aware that as you get older and you look back on your life, if you're at all sensitive or if you're paying attention, you can't help but have, um, have some regrets things you wish you could do over again, ways in which you know you hurt people. And just think of what it was like for Newton as he begins to become more deeply aware of how much harm he had done in the slave trade. He gave evidence to the Privy Council, evidence to a House Select Committee. He encouraged Wilberforce. He wrote against the trade. He spoke publicly and privately, and he tried to destroy it. But we were looking at a manuscript where actually it was the written text of his testimony to the House Select Committee. And he had he his own personal copy, he wrote his own handwriting on there. And you're looking at this at a library. Yeah, yeah looking at a copy at, 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 the, manu- at the manuscript. Okay. And he says, this is his own handwriting on his own copy to which he has signed his name, like I own what I have done. And I am now speaking against this. He said, I make no apology for speaking publicly against this trade. I dare not. Should I be silent, my conscience would speak loudly, knowing what I know. Nor could I expect a blessing on my ministry, though I should speak of the sufferings of Jesus till I was hoarse. Mm. So he's emphatic that he Mm. must speak out. But then at the bottom, Charles, he adds this note. He quotes Genesis 4.10, And the Lord God said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And so you just picture he places himself with that first murder, you know, Cain and Abel. And what I keep thinking is Hebrews twelve twenty four. Thank goodness that that the sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think Newton he wrote again about the same time to a friend who was on the abolition committee. He said, I hope God has forgiven me, but I ought to walk softly all my days in the remembrance of what I have been and what I have done. Mm. There's kind of a beautiful gentleness and a deep trust in the mercy of Christ, even for those of us as we get older, that God's grace and mercy stays with us. uh, We trust all the way to the end. And lest we think we don't understand John Newton, as he was nearing his death, he said these two little lines that I want you to share. If you don't know what he meant by the hymn Amazing Grace, all you need to know are those two lines that he said as he almost was, as he was dying, and he was almost dead. Share those lines with us. Well, that's right, Charles. He said, um, you know, many of us have uh, loved ones who 
near the end of their age begin losing their memories and so on. And he said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Mm -hmm. And it is like as he, he lived long enough to really reckon with the depth of his iniquity as a young person, the depth of his sinfulness. And as you get closer to the light of Jesus Christ, more impurities show up. And as he walked toward Jesus, he just let that, he let himself be exposed. And I think his repentance and his contrition and his humility grew deeper and deeper and his trust in Christ even more deeper. And that's reflected in those lines, isn't it? Mm. Bruce, you don't sound like a professor. You sound like a follower of Jesus. <laughs> That's all that matters. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bless you, brother. And you. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Great Stories with Charles Morris. And I also want to thank Bruce Heimarsh for joining us. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned Bruce's just-released book called Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton, and the surprising story behind his song. This bio reads like a novel, and it'll have you singing with joy how Christ's grace can transform the hardest of sinners. So to learn more about this incredible story, just go to haventoday.org. Select Amazing Grace in the products. Make your gift to Haven Ministries, and we'll send you a copy right away. And if you want to hear more content like what you just heard on today's episode, why don't you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts? Help us get the word out. Leave us a five-star review. You can also go to haventoday.org and sign up for our weekly email and discover more episodes posted on the blog. And as always, thank you for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris. Charles Morris.